You're listening to Enclave Community Church. For more information about Enclave, please visit us online at enclavecc.com. Good morning. Uh, The passage this morning is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. If you guys have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along. Um, Sorry. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Uh, I'm just going to pray real quick. Um, God, this is uh, your word. This is your scripture. Uh, I just pray that as Andrew comes up, you equip him, um, and that through him you... Uh, speak and teach uh, what you you have for us this morning. I just pray for your Holy Spirit to to reach deep down inside of our hearts and um, to 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 teach us, to grow us, to mature us uh, into becoming into uh, more like you and followers of you. Amen. And for those of you who were a part of all of that process, I think you can understand that it is weighty, it's significant, it's kind of like this pretty big project. And so when that time rolls around in the year, like right around August, right around September, while you guys are thinking about other things, Kathy and I are starting to think about a day of hope. And there's really two things that kind of go on in us. One, we start praying and asking, okay, God, do, do you really, you want us to do this again? Because if you do, we need your direction. We need your power. So the one thing we do is, is we're praying about the calling in, in general. But the second thing that we do is that we prayerfully look at the roster. Because we understand that the, the, the bigness of the project, it requires a lot of people. And uh, I'm looking around the room, and I'm wondering whether we wore some of you out because, <laughs> because there's like not as many people here as normal. But so though we do those two things. 
We pray about it, and then we prayerfully look, look at uh, uh, the roster. Now, how many in the room participated in some aspect of a day of hope? Whether you passed out bags, collected them, did the boxing. Okay, so a good, good number of you. It takes a lot of people to do it. But not just people, it takes leadership, right? And now Kathy is, has the lion's share of leadership in this whole thing. But there's other people who stepped up too, like Matt, Shelby, Michelle offered leadership during sort day. Nick was managing the map. And everybody had like, there was different areas in which leadership was needed, and, and that came about. And so knowing all of this, right, when... Day of Hope approaches this mission that God has given to this small local church, um, we begin prayerfully looking at the roster because if there's any vacancies there, then we have to ask God, God, can you please fill this vacancy because of this big mission that you have given us? And you can probably already tell where I'm kind of going with this. The, the early church found themselves in a similar position. Jesus had just given them this massive mission, global mission of being witnesses throughout the entire world, right? And so they're in this position of asking, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about this thing that is, is, is coming up? So we've been, we just started this series on, on the book of Acts, and we're kind of looking at this very unique interval of time of about only 10 days. It's this, you know, this very unique time of 10 days between two significant events in the life of the, in, in, in history of the church. These 10 days fall between the ascension of Jesus, right, when Jesus goes up to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, right after he gave this massive mission, and Pentecost, when Jesus pours out his spirit on his people so that they have the power to perform that mission. So talking about this little piece of time. And we asked last time we were together, and we're going to ask again today, okay, what did the church do during this small interval of time? Now, what we saw last time was that the first thing that they did was they had a prayer meeting, right? And you can almost imagine them praying, God, if you, man, global mission, you're going to have to provide direction. You're going to have to provide the power to be able to do this. Now, the second thing that they do, and what we're going to look at today, is they prayerfully look at their roster, right? And when they do, there's a glaring vacancy there, right? Because there's only how many apostles present at this prayer meeting? Eleven, so not twelve, right? So what we're going to be talking about today is how does the church respond to that? What, what do they do in terms of this vacancy? So we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of this vacancy, and we're going to talk a little bit about the choice of replacement that the church makes as a consequence of seeing this vacancy. So let's first talk about the significance of the vacancy. Now, the immediate cause of the vacancy is given to us in a sort of parenthetical statement given by Luke in verse 18. There we read, Now this man, talking about Judas Iscariot, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So we're talking about the 30 pieces of silver that Judas gets from the chief priests in exchange for betraying Jesus. He takes that reward for his wickedness, and then, and we won't go through 
Anyway, we'll skip that. But he, he has a field at the end of that, okay? And then it goes on to say this. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, those of you who know uh, Matthew chapter 27, how does Judas die in Matthew chapter 27? He hangs himself, right? He hangs himself. So, okay, wait a minute. And then this one says, okay, he, he falls headlong and then his bowels gush out. How, how does that kind of work together? Well, and there's all different kinds of ways of thinking about it. But some think, okay, yeah, he hung himself. Maybe his body got bloated over time. I know this is disgusting. Then the rope snaps or the branch snaps, and then he falls headlong, and then he, he bursts open. But no matter what the mechanism was of his death, the immediate cause for this vacancy is Judas's death, uh, more specifically suicide, which is a very significant thing, but that's not actually the main significant thing regarding this vacancy. The significance of this vacancy has to do with what Judas's position was, for one, but then also how many people were supposed to hold that position. So what position did Judas have? I heard treasurer and apostle, and those are both correct, but I was thinking more about apostle, right? So he holds the position of apostle. Jesus appointed Judas along with the 11 others after a sleepless night of, of prayer, and Luke chapter 6 tells us that. And then the apostle Peter describes Judas in our passage in this way in verse 17. And he was numbered among us, meaning among the apostles, and was allotted his share in this ministry. So he was supposed to be one of their ministry partners, an apostolic ministry, which now included this worldwide mission. So that's one significant thing about this vacancy is that Judas held the position of apostle. But another significant thing about it was the number of people who were supposed to have that position. It was supposed to be 12. Now, is there any significance to the number 12? Right, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So when Jesus appoints 12 apostles... Right. Part of what that is supposed to mean symbolically is that God is now sort of reconstituting the people of God, not around the temple, not around Jerusalem, not even specifically relative to the land, but around the person of Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom. So just as in the Old Testament, where God gathered 12 tribes around himself as he dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle. Now God gathers 12 apostles around Jesus, the king of the kingdom, as he tabernacles among them, just like Jacob was talking about last week. So <clears throat> that was, it was meant to uh, symbolize the reconstitution of the people of God. So now think about this vacancy, understanding that. So now one of the 12 original cabinet members of Jesus, right? Not only did he die, but he defected, right? So like there's other apostles, like in fact, all the apostles are dead now, right? <clears throat> but even in the book of Acts, James dies in Acts chapter 12 and they don't replace him. 
right? So the significance is, okay, not just that he died, but he defected. And what are we supposed to think about that, right? The natural question that arises, okay, yeah, that seems really significant, significant that Jesus, he's reconstituting the people of God around him, and that's symbolically represented in these 12, and then one of the 12 defects. How are we supposed to think about that? What does that mean for the kingdom of God? What does that mean for the mission that God has just given us in, in Jesus? And I think that this passage, which is a, it's an interesting, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to, to preach on because you're, you're going along, you're like, wait, what, what's happening here? Um, <clears throat> I think that this passage in part is designed to answer that question. And the way that Peter answers it is by telling us, look, even though Judas died and he defected, that's the immediate cause for the vacancy, what you also need to know is that this was part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan. And so Peter, he stands up and he addresses the 120 people there in this prayer meeting, and he says this in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Right? You could translate that. It was necessary. There was no way around this. It had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David regarding Judas. Okay, David spoke about Judas. I wonder what that's about. Who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, we've said this before, but one of the major themes in the book of Acts is that whatever happens in history, whatever happens in history is part of God's perfect plan. Even the ploys or what Satan tries to do to mess it up, right? So when you go throughout the book of Acts, what you find is that God the Father, he repeatedly takes those actions which are done and are, are evil, and he flips the script, and he works it out so that things further his plan. And the chief example of that would be what? Jesus' death, right? In, in Acts chapter 2, it says it was in accordance with the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So on the outside looking in, like think about if you, we know the whole story, so we kind of think about it differently. But from the outside looking in, Right, If you're one of Jesus' followers and you see him hanging on the cross, who does it feel like who's winning, Satan or God? It feels like Satan's winning, right? But what does God do with the cross? He flips the script. It was the plan all along, right? That's the way in which he actually provides salvation for the world. Right, and if that's true of the cross, well, then that's true of everything. Like that, that's the pattern for understanding everything in your life, everything throughout church history. God takes terrible things and he uses it to further his good plan. And we're going to see it all come exalting Jesus at the end. And that's going to be the entire point. I was talking with um, Andrew earlier this morning about like, man, like, why does even the fall happen? Why do all these bad things? You can, if you ask the question, why did this bad thing happen? Which I don't want to minimize any bad thing 
that happens to you. I, 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 I've dealt with some significant bad things happened even last week. I was just like, how in the world am I going to get through this week? But if you, if you can say, okay, why does that happen? You can trace that all the way back to the garden. Why did that happen? Why does Adam, like why does God, does God not know that Adam's going to eat from the tree? I think God knows, right? I think he knows. But, but if God is creating a story, a perfect story to exalt his son, well, yeah. It's still evil. It's still terrible. But it's like, if you want to know God as redeemer and not just creator, there has to be a fall. And see, God is like, this is what I'm saying. There are things happening all around us in your life, in history, that are well beyond our ability to understand. Right? And, and God is calling us in the midst of that to trust him. And so what Peter is saying in this passage is like, okay, Jesus, uh, Judas died because he defected. And that looks like an unexpected big win for Satan. But actually, this had to happen this way for God to fulfill his perfect plan of redemption and to fulfill his scriptures. Now, what scriptures is Peter talking about? Like, what is he thinking of? Well, he gives us a clue in verse 20. It says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. So that's from Psalm 69, 25. And then he goes on to say, and let another take his office. So that's from Psalm 109, 8. Now, what's interesting about these two Psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, if you read them in their entirety, they are both written by David, who is what in relationship to Israel? He's a king. Was he an anointed king? Right. Remember Samuel anointed him? So the way that the Old Testament talks about that is that the, the technical name is Messiah. He is a Mashiach. He's an anointed king. He's a Christos. He's a Christ. He's a type of Christ. So the type of Christ is writing the psalm. In the psalm, he talks about uh, he's crying out for deliverance as a righteous sufferer because people are persecuting him. And he cries out for God to bring judgment on those who are persecuting him as a righteous sufferer. Now, Peter, right? And, and this is true of all the apostles. And, and this, is, this is just uh, littered throughout the New Testament. He reads the whole Old Testament, like Jesus told him to read it, Christologically, meaning in light of, through the lens of, Jesus' life, his death, uh, burial, and resurrection. And so when he reads that passage, he says, oh, I know what this is ultimately pointing to. This is God's judgment on Judas, who is persecuting God's ultimate anointed king, God's ultimate righteous sufferer in Jesus Christ. And that's how he understands this text. He said, that's, that's being fulfilled 
right now. So the immediate cause for this vacancy has to do with Judas's uh, suicide. But ultimately, this was all part of God's judgment upon Judas as he gives Judas over. Who hangs Judas? Judas. Is it part of God's judgment? Yes. You see how that works? God's judgment, Romans 1, other places, is where God gives you what you want. Right? He, Judas was given what he wanted, right? And that was part of God's judgment. He gave him over to his idolatry and he gave him over to Satan, right? And, and what Satan does, right, is did Satan from that point on, because he was a good servant, take care of Judas? No, that's not what Satan does in our lives. He lures us in with idolatry and once he's done with you, he throws you away and then he has the audacity to say, shame on you for doing that. Right? And so Judas, he has all this remorse, which is different from repentance, because repentance means you turn to God, but he has all this remorse, and he's like, I can't take this anymore. And Satan's like, yeah, go ahead and kill yourself. So that, that's the kind of, if you want that kind of leadership, you'll find that in Satan. Right? But God is, is calling us to something different. But Judas is this really sober example of how that all looks like. He's an example of someone who was deeply... Now, okay, does Judas walk around with horns and a pitchfork? Is he always going like this? You think he was always like going like this when he was with... No, no, he's not. Just like after who he's patterned after, angel of light, that's what it's called about Satan... He, no, he was deeply involved in ministry, deeply, and yet not a true follower of Jesus, right? He was, it was said earlier, a treasurer of the apostles. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus sends him with the rest of the apostles out, and they go proclaiming the kingdom of God, healing the sick, and casting out demons. So Judas was there, right? And yet, he's not a true follower of Jesus. Because Jesus to him was just a means to an end. Right? He looked at Jesus and thought, okay, here's this revolutionary. He's probably going to overtake the Roman government. When he does that, he'll have a cabinet. And then I'm, I'm getting a little bit of money now, taking from the treasury. But then maybe I'll be able to take more. So if I follow Jesus, at the end of that road is money and power, right? And it's like, okay, yeah, give me a little bit of Jesus, if that's what that means. But it's just a means to an end. But then once Judas figures out this road of following Jesus includes a cross, he's, he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, that this road that he's on with Jesus doesn't lead to money and power? He's out. Like he's gone. Right? And, and, and it's sobering, isn't it? Like there, there's, a, there's many people who call themselves followers of Jesus. Yeah, give me a little bit of Jesus. Right? But what did, what is, what's actually going on in their heart. What's going on in my heart? What's going on in your heart regarding Jesus? Is he just a means to an end? Because right? what will happen is 
don't be surprised that they're defectors. Because what's the actual relationship to Jesus? If you're thinking of Jesus as a means to an end and not the end himself, like he is the treasure. If he's not the treasure, like I follow Jesus to get to Jesus, he's the means and the end. If he's not the treasure, then you're missing the gospel. The gospel is about knowing Jesus. Right? And so when people, when you know people in your family, friends that you've had, and I have my own friends, and it's like they just stop following Jesus, you have to wonder, man, I wonder why they followed Jesus to begin with. Was he just a means to an end? And Jesus spoke about it in the, in the parable of the soils, didn't he? It's like the word of God comes and, and tribulation comes and it snuffs out. Like if you're following Jesus for something else, you're going to end up defecting. And so Judas is this sober example of, of that. And it leads to this significant vacancy that now the church is trying to, trying to understand. But a big point being made in all of this is that didn't stop the kingdom of God. Right, right. That's not, that's not the end of the story. And that brings us to our second point. So there's this vacancy, but then there's also a replacement. Now, Peter does two things to kind of initiate the replacement of Judas. He gives scriptural warrant for it. That's one thing that he does. But then he also talks about the criteria that would be necessary for the replacement. Now, we've talked about the scriptural warrant a little bit already, right? He quotes Psalm 109.8, and he says, let another take his office. So Peter, like we said, he looks at Judas and, and the replacement of Judas as a fulfillment of this scripture that is about God bringing judgment on the persecutor of the ultimate righteous sufferer, Jesus. Right? And now that's being fulfilled, P Peter is saying. And then he gives criteria for the replacement in verses 21 and 22. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So let's think about it. So Peter is saying, look, in order to fulfill the mission, this massive global mission that Jesus has given us to be his witnesses throughout the world, right? We need somebody who saw it. We need somebody who saw Jesus's ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. Because when, when Jesus talks to primarily, primarily the apostles, but then also us, when he talks to the apostles in Acts chapter 1, 8, and he's talking about them being witnesses, he is talking about uh, the way that we would be witnesses in the sense that we talk about the reality of God in our life and how he's changing us. But he's also talking about how they were actual witnesses, like eyewitnesses who saw these things regarding Jesus. So the apostles, they didn't just have like a warm, fuzzy feeling about Jesus. They did. They didn't just have a commitment to Jesus. They did. They saw things. They heard things regarding Jesus. And they become these sort of guarantors holding the tradition of Jesus. 
It's like, what? okay, so what would Jesus say about this? What would he do in this situation? You know, we have the New Testament now, but back then it's like, oh, uh, let's go ask the apostle. Because he was there, right? And so they're like, okay, that's the criteria. He needs to be there. He has to see all the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of, of Jesus. Now, the church responds to Peter's recommendation in verses 23 through 26. And they kind of do three things, and, and you'll see. First, in verse 23, it says, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. So evidently, these two fit the criteria that uh, Peter has just set forth. And church history kind of uh, bears that out. Because Eusebius tells us that these two were actually part of the 72 in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, that Jesus sent out. So they've been there from the beginning. So these are two good candidates. That's the first thing that they do. The second thing in verse 24 is this. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all. So it's not just people who saw things, but people of, of character whose hearts belong to Jesus. Show which one of these two, two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they pray about it. But then they do this in verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So the early church responds by putting forth two good candidates. They pray about it, and then they cast lots. Now we're familiar with putting forth good candidates, familiar with prayer. But what's this about casting lots? <laughs> like We don't really, we're not as familiar with that. So the way that that would have looked like is like maybe, and, and some of this is conjecture, but like they'd have, a, they'd have a pot, they'd put mark stones in the pot, they'd shake it, and then the one that fell out would be, give them the direction in which they would go. Now, as uncomfortable as that might make you feel, Right In the Old Testament, this was seen as a way of determining God's will. Even the Urim and the Thurman have elements that are kind of like this. And you see examples of it in Nehemiah 11, 2 Chronicles chapter 26, and Proverbs 16.33 in an effort to try to help us understand how God is sovereign over every detail that happens in the world. It says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, there are no other church leaders that are decided this way. Right? There's Matthias, and then after Matthias, every subsequent church leader is chosen by spirit-indwelt believers. So you see that in Acts 6, Acts 14, Acts 15, so on. Right? So what, like, what is happening here? Well, you have to remember... Right? So I'm not um, promoting casting lots as a way to determine who should be, you know, a church leader. But you have to remember the time period and when they're, where they're in. Has the Holy Spirit come yet at Pentecost? No, he has not. Right? So maybe, so they pray, they cast lots, and then the lot falls on Matthias. Now the big question that arises when you look at this passage is the question of whether or not this was the right thing 
to do. And even in this room, <laughs> I wasn't going to stare at him, but um, <laughs> even in this room, there are differences of opinion regarding this. Some say no, that this was not legitimate, and some say yes. Now, now those who say no, the argument kind of goes like this. And you tell me if I'm representing this right, uh, Jay Hyatt. <laughs> <laughs> Those who say no, they say, man, look, if, if, if the apostles had only waited like Jesus told them to do, right, then they would have seen how God would have filled this vacancy with the apostle Paul, right? But instead, they jumped the gun, right, and chose to perform this inferior method of choosing, of casting lots, and it fell on Matthias. Now those are, those are some pretty good points in favor of maybe they didn't do the right thing. But then there are others who say maybe this was a legitimate thing for them to do. And, and those on that side of the, the ledger, they acknowledge. Yeah, okay, yeah, casting lots, that, that is no longer normative now that the Spirit has come. But think about when this happened, right? It happened between the Ascension. It happened between, the, between Pentecost. Yes, Paul is an apostle, but he is an apostle to the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8. The 12 are supposed to represent the restoration of Israel. So maybe there's something significant about that. Yes, it's true, right? And I forgot to mention that this is part of the argument of those who say no. They say, well, Matthias is never mentioned again. It's just not ever mentioned again. And maybe that's a signal for us to pick up on maybe that wasn't a good choice. And I acknowledge that Matthias was never mentioned again in the book of Acts, but that's kind of weakened by the fact that none of the other apostles are, are mentioned except for Peter, James, and John. It's interesting, isn't it? This, what's this book called? <laughs> the Acts of who? The Apostles? Okay. And then almost none of them are mentioned. <laughs> Maybe it should be called the Acts of Jesus through the church that is spirit-empowered. I'm just saying, but, you know, we'll, we'll go with Acts of the Apostles because that's what we've been given. <clears throat> so, okay, yeah, okay, Matthias isn't mentioned, but nobody else is mentioned. And then on top of this, okay, this decision was made in a prayer meeting, in consultation with the Scriptures, and as a result of Peter uh, giving a speech. Now, when Peter speaks in the Gospels, it's normally wrong. Right? Okay, but once, like, uh, Jesus puts Peter back in the position of ministry, all throughout the book of Acts, his speeches kind of carry things along in the narrative, at least during the first part of the book of Acts. And they're mostly regarded positively. So it might be a little bit too nuanced, I'm saying, for the reader to pick on that pick up on that this is an illegitimate choice. But the clincher for me, like the little tiny weight that kind of leans it in the direction of maybe this was a legitimate choice, is Acts chapter 6, verse 2. Because there it mentions the 12. The 12 do something. Now, when does Paul get converted? What chapter of Acts? Acts 9. So it seems like that the 12 in Acts chapter 6 
has got to include Matthias. Now, I'm not going to die on this hill, okay? Uh, I, I'm just saying, like, okay, that seems to lean it in, in that favor. Now, in the New Testament neither uh, condemns nor condones um, that decision, right? So that, that's why I don't want to press hard on it. And I think it's also important to recognize that no matter how you feel about it, like either it was a legitimate decision or not a legitimate decision, the one big takeaway is this. And I think this is perhaps the main point of the passage. Even if a major, significant church leader defects, the kingdom of God continues. Right? And that is like really good news. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes when you read in the newspaper, oh, okay, so he also fell, or this person also fell in ministry. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's like, well, I saw that. Uh, you know what I mean? But other times you're just like, oh, like Rabbi Zacharias, right? When it, like things come out about him and it's like just not what we thought. And that sent shock waves throughout the evangelical church. And you're wondering, man, can, can the kingdom of God continue if these are supposed to be his witnesses, right? And the answer is yes, yes. Because right? God is, it's not about... <laughs> The Acts of the Apostles barely talk about the Apostles, right? It's because it's God's story. It's not dependent on us being awesome. God is awesome. And so if there's a big fall with the church leader, it's still okay. It's not okay that they did that, but it's okay because God's kingdom will continue, right? And, and those who are on the opposite side of the ledger of than me, right? They say, like, this is an illegitimate choice on behalf of the apostles. They can be even more enthusiastic about that, right? Because they're looking at the whole scope of Acts in church history, and they see the kingdom of God marching on and prevailing when the first official act of the church is to get it completely wrong, right? <laughs> and so I wouldn't be surprised if, if God tells me, oh, they, they did that wrong. But God's so kind, Right? He's like, oh, they're doing the lot thing. Well, <laughs> you know, well, I, it's still, he's like, okay, right? I, it's going to, you know, I was talking to Jay earlier about, do you know how uh, David, or, or, or sorry, Saul before David, you know how he becomes king? Do you remember what Samuel felt about that? He's like, God, they're rejecting you as king. And, and God, he's kind of saying like, yeah, I know, um, but you know how Adam fell and he was a king priest? So we need to have this like human kingship going so I can send my son and he can become incarnate and then he can be the king priest. That's what's going to exalt my, and it's like, yeah, it's, but that's evil, God. And it's like, he's like, yes, I know, but my plan is perfect and my plan will exalt my son for the joy of all who unite to him in faith, right? And so, man, what kind of confidence should this give us? As we, as we look out at the mission field at Turlock, across the street, and, and 
We're like, man, what if I mess this up? And this passage is saying like, well, it seems pretty much impossible to mess up the, the plan of God, right? And so what kind of courage could that give you? And saying so like, I can go. Let's say I say all the wrong things and still God can do his work. So draw near to, to him and let him do his work in you. May God give us that confidence. Let's pray together. Father, you're, you are good and your plan is perfect. And even the evil things that happen, the bad things that happen, all of those things, God, you're going to make to work out for, for your good and for your kingdom to advance. But Father, we, we admit, we kind of know that in general. We believe it for the test. But deep in our hearts, when, when trouble comes, we're struggling to believe it. And so, God, we, we call upon you now to fill us with your spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us to fall in love with Jesus again this morning, God, and worship him. Help us to see our lives as part of this bigger story that you are writing. And help us to be faithful witnesses for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.